Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. We're in Luke chapter 14 today. And so if you want to open your Bibles, and I hope that you will, uh, that I want you to join us here in Luke, the 14th chapter. And right off the bat, I want you uh, to notice something. I want you to notice where Jesus is as Luke 14 opens. It's important that we do that. Uh, Look at verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, that's significant, is it not? In fact, if you underline or circle in your Bible, I'm going to encourage you to do so, because where Jesus is is interesting. He's at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Remember, just last week, it was a ruler of the synagogue who challenged him about healing that woman who had been bent over for 18 years that we read about early in Luke 13. It was this group of Pharisees who were at this very moment looking for a reason to have Jesus killed. Jesus is eating what most of us would, is eating with what most of us would consider his enemies. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't just teach us to love our enemies, that he actually lives it out. He lives out that truth, and there's something for us there. Now, why in the world would Jesus be there? Why do you think that he would accept this invitation? By the way, we don't know who this ruler of the Pharisees is, and no scholars are even wagering a guess that I've read But I'm going to tell you this, if I'm Jesus, there ain't no way I'm going to this house. I'm avoiding this house like the plague. I'm avoiding this meal uh, with all that I have in me, right? I'm not going into enemy territory. That's crazy. And so why is Jesus there? And there's a short answer that I want to give you, and here it is. Jesus hasn't given up on them yet. Did you hear what I said to you? Jesus hasn't given up on them yet. Look back to the end of chapter 13 and you have Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I wanted to gather you together. He still wants to do that. He still hasn't given up on the very people who are trying to end his life. He is still hoping that these religious leaders, these Pharisees, will come to their senses and enter the kingdom of God. Now, here's one reason why that's important. Because you can know that if he didn't give up on them, he's not going to give up on you either. You need to know that this morning. Somebody sitting here listening to my voice needs to know he's not giving up on you either. He is not giving up on those who are far from him. And I just want to remind you of that as we get started this morning. Regardless of what you have done, he's not giving up on you. Remember Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 where where it says Jesus stands at the door and he's knocking and he says this, anyone, did you hear those words, that word, anyone who opens the door and welcomes him in, he's going to come and he's going to dine with them. Anyone, you haven't done too much, you haven't gone too far, you are not a hopeless cause And my prayer today is that you will hear his voice and you will open the door. Even if you have been what you might consider an enemy of Jesus, I pray that you will hear his voice and open the door because he will come and be with you. 
Now, please understand that when you open the door, Jesus is going to call you out of your sin. He's going to call you out of all of those things that have led you away from him. He's going to ask you to check those at the door. He's going to call you to a different way of living and a different way of thinking, but he is not running away from you. He's not running from you. He's running to you, and he stands with open arms waiting for you to welcome him in. I want to say this too. If Jesus is willing to engage those who might be considered his enemies, don't you think he's also going to open the door to have fellowship with those who love him? Don't you think he's going to open the door to have fellowship with those who, who, who maybe are needing a bit of revival in their lives today? Could that be any of you sitting here today? I know, man, we've just come through a really difficult season in the church, in our world. Maybe you need some reviving today. Maybe your spirit just needs some more that Jesus has to offer. Understand, he's willing to give that to you as well. He wants to bless you in that same way. Don't you think that he's going to open the door of fellowship to anyone who needs revival in their life as well. Of course he is. He wants to encourage those who are far from him to come home. He wants to encourage those who are with him to keep the faith, to keep going, to keep moving. He wants all of us to come to repentance. He wants all of us to come to salvation that is found in his name. I just wanted to remind you of that as we get started today. This amazing grace, this amazing love that Jesus offers to every single person, it's still available today. So Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisee, on another Sabbath day. And this is very much like the miracle story that we tackled last week in Luke chapter 13. But here in Luke 14, the man that he's going to heal has a condition called dropsy. And you might be wondering, what in the world is dropsy? I'm glad you asked. I looked it up. I didn't know this off the top of my head. But dropsy is an old medical term that's used to identify someone who has a swelling of the soft tissues in their bodies, typically someone who has accumulated a whole bunch of water on their system. And so just before Jesus heals this man, he asked the lawyers and the Pharisees who were at this dinner party, who were watching him and trying to catch him doing something wrong, he asked them, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath? And these men make no reply. They do not answer Jesus' question. Jesus then heals the man, and he shames them by saying, which of you having a son or an ox that fell into a well wouldn't work to pull him out immediately on the Sabbath? And their silence is deafening. They continue. They refuse to believe that Jesus is from God. And you want to know why they refuse to believe he's from God? Because they don't think that Jesus should be doing the things that he's doing. They don't think that this is how God would be acting if he were walking around among them. And so they close their eyes to the truth that is standing right in front of them. And I want to plead with you this morning, please don't let that be you. Because our God is not tired or retired or out of business. He still can. He still will. He still does do new, amazing, faith-building things in our lives. But if you put him in a box and say, you can't operate outside of this, you're doing exactly what they did. You are closing your eyes to the truth that's standing right in front of you in Jesus Christ. And Jesus uses this occasion at this dinner party to tell a couple of parables and to teach some important truths 
So let's look at these parables and truths that he teaches us. Here's the first parable. It's called the parable of the wedding feast. And we read it in Luke 14, verse 7. So let's dive in together. It says this, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And here's what he says to them, beginning in verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lower place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this teaching of Jesus is not always referred to or recognized as a parable because it really just looks like a piece of practical advice. Here's how you avoid embarrassment at a dinner party, right? But there's so much more to it than that. And as we should know by now, Jesus is not just an advice-giving Savior. He's doing something different. There's more to this story than meets the eye. And Jesus, once again, is turning things upside down. This parable is talking about how the people of Jesus' day were, were, were busy jostling for position, not only in the eyes of the people in which they, uh, they worked and lived and moved, but they were jostling for position in the eyes of God. They were eager to push themselves forward to show how well they were keeping the law and maintaining their, their purity. And, and they... <laughs> Think about this, they were precisely the sort of people that Jesus found himself with in the first six verses, people who would reject a miracle on the Sabbath or would condemn Jesus for hanging out with that crowd. These are the same ones who are trying to jostle for position to say, hey, look at me, look at what I'm doing. And so absolutely, this parable teaches us about humility and it warns us against human wisdom but the real meaning is found in this warning that Jesus gives about putting ourselves forward in the sight of God. Do we, are we guilty of kind of the same thing sometimes to making sure that what we do is seen by men so that we can have some maybe uh, some people giving us a little bit of credit, a little bit of glory, a little bit of this, right? I, I see some of that in our own life. I see some of that in my own life. But then I was reminded of something as we were, as I was preparing this lesson. You know what? I need you to get this today. You don't have to fight for God's love. You don't have to fight for it. You want to know why? Because you already have it. You don't have to fight for God's love. You don't have to make yourself look better in God's eyes because you already have God's love. And if you've ever doubted that truth, then Jesus is all the proof that you'll ever need. Jesus is the proof that God could not love us any more than he, than he does right now. He loves us more than we could possibly imagine. You see, Jesus is not some basketball coach where your performance on the court earns you more of his favor. Jesus is not a band director who's watching to see who's going to sit in chair one and who's going to sit in chair two and chair seven and 12 or whatever. He's not an employer who's looking at you and saying, man, who's going to get the big raise based on how they do it's not what he does. Now, does that mean that doing things doesn't matter? Of course it matters. What we do matters. But God, listen to me, God couldn't love me any more than he does right now. And even when I fail, he doesn't love me any less. 
The truth of God's love doesn't give us a license to sin. Instead, it should give us a a, a license to, to share that love with the people around us, to love others the same way that he loves us. And it should motivate us to constantly be about his business and not our own. Not to earn something, but out of a heart full of gratitude. You don't have to try to earn God's love because you already have it. So stop, stop trying to position yourself to make yourself look better here or there or where. Just stop it. You don't have to do that. God loves you. He loves you, and there's nothing you can do to stop his love. Isn't that so different from how we operate today? Ours is a performance-based society. Ours is a performance. Sometimes our families can even give in to this performance-based nonsense that the world is showing us. That is not the way of God. The second parable that we have begins in verse 12. It's called the parable of the great banquet. And so he says, let's just look at these first couple verses. He says also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." He says, he says, don't just go out there uh, doing what you do in order to, to get paid back. That's not why we do this. And then he, then he carries on. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who eats bread at the kingdom of God. Well, I don't understand why this guy says this. I mean, that's a pretty simple statement. Everybody would agree with it, right? But Jesus says to him in verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who were invited, Come, all things are ready. Everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I just can't come. I'll leave that alone. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry. And he said to the servants, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be full. For I tell you, none of those, none of those men who were invited shall take my banquet. This parable uh, seems to be something Jesus intended for us to put into practice. Uh, Let me just say that off the bat. This idea of not just inviting those who we know are going to invite us back, but, but, but really loving people in front of us. That's why I'm so thankful for Next Steps and what we're doing is we're trying to put passages like this into practice and love everybody regardless of whether they can pay us back or not. Uh, but, but there's more to it than just that. There's a deeper uh, meaning in this section of Scripture. In fact, there are three levels of meaning that I want to share with you. So here's level number one. The first level of this parable, I think, should be clear. Jesus has been going around all of Galilee, summoning people to God's great supper, right? This is what he's been doing since he began his work there in Galilee. This is the moment also that Israel had been waiting for. 
At last, the time has arrived. Those who were invited long ago are, are, are encouraged to hurry up and to come into this feast that Jesus has invited them to. But we know that most of them, most of them have refused. Most of them have given all kinds of excuses as to why they're not coming. And so this parable shows us that some people have rejected God, but it also shows us that there are others who have been delighted to be included in this invitation. The poor, the disadvantaged, the disabled, to name only a few, are rushing into the kingdom of God. They have come in, and they are celebrating with Jesus. I just want to ask you, could we be, could we be the ones making excuses? You say, well, come on, preacher, we're at church. That couldn't be us. We say we want to go to heaven. We say we want to do the will of God. And then we get an invitation to kingdom business and kingdom blessings. Is it possible that we have become so distracted that we refuse those invitations? That we cannot see what's right in front of us? There's a second level of meaning in this parable. And this is what I believe Luke has meant all along. The expected guests that are coming to this, or invited to this feast, are the Jews. They've been waiting and waiting for the kingdom, only to find that when it arrived, they have more important things to be doing. They didn't recognize the kingdom had arrived because they were too distracted by other things. We know that the majority of the nation, both in Palestine and in all of these uh, scattered Jewish communities throughout the rest of the world, most of them rejected Jesus. And so God's messengers have gone out, by the time Luke writes this, have gone out into the highways and byways of the world, and, and they have invited all kinds of people, unexpected kind of people, have then come into the kingdom. Not just Gentiles... Uh, but, but people with every kind of moral and immoral background have been, uh, have been ushered in. People quite different from these Jews culturally and socially and ethnically and ethically as well. I'm wondering, could this be us? Could we be those invited guests who are guilty of thinking, well... I'm not so sure about all those folks being in the kingdom. Or maybe if, we, if they come in, it'll be behind us. There's a third level of meaning that I want you to see as well. The party to which these original guests were invited was Jesus' kingdom. They were being invited into Jesus' kingdom movement. And they made excuses as to why they couldn't be a part of it. And so once again, the challenge comes to us. As Christians reading this anywhere in the world, we have to figure out how in our churches and families, we have to figure out what it means to celebrate God's kingdom so that the people who find themselves on the outside looking in, maybe at the bottom of the pile or at the end of the line, would find what we have as good news. We have to figure out a way to make sure that what we're presenting to a watching world, they actually desire and want that it is good news. Listen, it's not enough. It is not enough for us to say, 
Oh, yes, I was one of those out on the highway that God invited into his kingdom. That's true. It is absolutely true. We as Gentiles were the outsiders who he welcomed in. He went out into the byways and highways with his message, and we came in, and that's fantastic. But that's not enough. Since we have been brought in, we are now expected to be party hosts. This is, this is who we are as a church. We are to be party hosts in return. We're to be going out into the highways and the byways and reaching out to those that everybody else has given up on and introducing them and telling them and reaching to them with the good news of Jesus Christ. That they can come in, that they haven't gone too far, that they're not too far gone. That is our call. That is our job as followers of Jesus. This chapter finishes... In Luke chapter 14, in verse 25, with, I don't know if you see it in your Bible, but there's a heading called the cost of discipleship. So let's read this. It says, now great crowds accompanying him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you... Desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man bought, began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Imagine with me a politician Oh, we just got real, didn't we? <laughs> Something instantly pops into your mind when I say politics. Imagine a politician standing on his soapbox, addressing a crowd, and here is his message. Politician, if you're going to vote for me, you're voting to lose your homes, to lose your families. You're asking for higher taxes. You're asking for lower wages. You're voting to lose all that you love most. So who's with me? Okay, I got one. <laughs> we wouldn't even heckle somebody like that, right? I mean, why bother? Why on earth would someone try to advertise himself in that way? And some people look at this and say, well, is that, is that what Jesus is doing here? Is, is Jesus saying to us, you want to be my disciple? Well, listen, you're going to have to learn to hate your family, give up your possessions, and get ready for a nasty death. Is that what Jesus is saying? Because I'm not sure that's how we win friends and influence people. <laughs> I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. So rather than a politician, I want you to think of it this way. Let's, let's, let's think of a leader of a great expedition. A leader of a great expedition who is forging his way through a high and dangerous mountain pass in order to bring urgent medical aid to villagers who have been cut off from the rest of the world. All right, imagine that. 
And now, listen to what the leader says. He says, if you come any further, you're going to have to leave your packs behind. Because from, from here on out, the path is too steep for you to carry all that stuff that you've brought with you. And by the way, you're probably not going to find it again anyway. And you better go ahead and send off those final postcards home. This is a dangerous route, and I just need you to know that several of us probably won't make it back. We understand that a little bit more than a politician, don't we? We may not like it, but we understand what's going on. And I just want to suggest to you that Jesus is more like the second person, the leader of the great expedition, than he is the politician. You see, Jesus is not denying the importance of close family and the importance of living in harmony with each other. But when there is an urgent task, and getting the gospel into this world is the urgentest, <laughs> the most urgent task that we have. When there is an urgent task to be done, then everything else including your very life, must be put at risk for the sake of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is teaching us. And the same is true of our possessions. Listen, many of Jesus' followers then and now have owned homes and lands, and, and they have not felt compelled to abandon those things. But I hope that we are prepared to do so if the need arises. Because being prepared to do so is the sign that we have understood the seriousness of the call to follow Jesus. Any of us at any time might be summoned quite literally to give up everything and respond to an emergency situation. And if you're not ready to do that, then we're like the guy who bought a piece of land and started to build a tower but didn't have enough funds to finish it. Or we're like the, the guy going to war with 10,000 and doesn't recognize we have no way of winning against the guy coming at us with 20. So what's the point of all of this? What's the point of Luke 14? Well, I think there are several. The first, going back to what we began with, is simply this. God loves you. He loves you. God unashamedly loves you. And you don't earn God's love because he loved you even before you knew him, before you acknowledged him, or before you ever chose to follow him. Right? Romans 5 makes clear while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Your performance isn't what determines God's desire for you. And in a world obsessed with performance, we need to hear Luke 14 loud and clear. God loves you. A second thing we learn here from Luke chapter 14 is simply this. God's desire is for you to share that love with others. How are you doing with that? Not just with those who are like us, that think like us, that look like us, that might vote like us, but with even those who are far away. How are we doing in sharing that love with others? We were the outcasts who've been brought into the party. We've been brought into the banquet table of Jesus and we have enjoyed the blessings of that amazing invitation. And so we must, and we are expected to become party hosts in return. We are expected to be inviting people to the table of the Lord into the kingdom of God. Number three, God's desire is for you to yield to him every part of your life. Are you willing to do that? 
Are you willing to turn it all over to him and say, God, use it as you see fit? Every part of our life belongs to him. Is that true? Do you believe that? And those that answer yes are the ones that believe that Jesus really is going to take care of me, that this isn't just pie in the sky thinking some sweet by and by thing, but no, this is, this is real. And I'm willing to lay it all on the line because I know who I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And finally, God wants us to count the cost. There is a cost involved in following Jesus. There really is. And if you think there isn't a cost involved in following Jesus, then my guess is you have a, a distorted picture of Jesus and what it means to be his follower. Think about it. Think about the costs that come with following Jesus. Sometimes a decision for Jesus means refusing to go along with or support a friend or family member in a decision that may be immoral in God's eyes. Count the cost. Are you willing to stand for Jesus even then? Counting the cost may mean telling a brother or a sister or a relative or friend who's cheating on their spouse that God's not pleased with those actions in an act of confrontive love. Are you still willing to stand with Jesus? And it certainly means being faithful in the midst of a workplace where honesty and hard work are not respected. Are you still willing to stand with Jesus? Counting the cost means not going with the flow at school just because everybody else is doing it, but saying, I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to stand with Jesus. You see, we need to understand that God is calling us not just to welcome the blessings that come with being a Christian, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, this fellowship of believers. No, he is also calling us to welcome the new way of living. Count the cost. Will you, will you stand with Jesus if it costs you your money? Will you stand with Jesus if it costs you your friends? Will you stand with Jesus if it costs you your popularity? What if it costs you your life? Still willing to stand with Jesus? Count the cost. Jesus stands at the door and he's knocking. Before you open the door, I want to just call you today to count the cost. And I want you to remember, I want you to remember that when you open the door, there is going to be some expectations that he places on you. He's going to call you out of your sin. He's going to call you out of those things that have led you away from him. He's going to ask you to leave those things behind. And he's going to call you to a different way of living and a different way of thinking. He's not afraid of you, and he's not running from you. He's not avoiding you. He's inviting you in. And he stands with open arms, ready to receive anyone, anyone who would come. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. 
As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.